Uh, yeah, let me. That makes me feel very powerful. <laughs> All right, I just pressed recording. Let me transfer okay. you as the host and then you can hit it and I will disappear. Okay, thanks, Tang. Bye, Tang. Bye, thanks. All right, ready, set, go. All right. So, we'll, hey, everybody, thanks for joining us. We're going to wait a couple minutes um, for everybody to, to be on before we get started with Esau today. All right there, cool. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We're just going to wait a little bit longer. For everybody to log on, this is Kimberly Deckel, if I haven't met you. I think if you're local to Phoenix, we probably know each other. But um, we're really excited to have Dr. Isama Kali with us here today. We're going to wait a little bit longer for everybody to join us, and then we will get going. I think they need to find out a better way for people to kill time whenever they start webinars. We need some kind of best practice. Maybe we should do like... We should do elevator music or something. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> hey, Tang. <laughs> yeah, can you can play music I, from my phone? <laughs> they'll probably charge fees or something because you know, like if we tried to stream a little, stream a little bit of, I don't know, Kurt Franklin. I've been in a Kurt Franklin mood lately. What have you been? What have you been listening to? We should have. I was gonna say. Well, so recently I've been listening to some music that my husband's been helping record. So you wouldn't. Oh, look it. at this. Local, local. So a woman from our church who I wish was on here, her name's Raquel Dennis, and she's been recording at our house. And so my husband's been like doing some mixing and mastering oh, for her. Yeah. Did you, did you know that I was, did I sing? No, will you sing for us? <laughs> Nothing. I mean, I'm actually horrible. <laughs> I completely made that up. I, I didn't know if you would be able to tell that I was, that I was lying when I said that. I couldn't tell you were being sarcastic. Um, I, I try to say it as seriously as possible. Anybody who knows me, I might, I think I'm literally the worst singer that I know. <laughs> now I kind of like, want I, to see. I, I, I like, bother, I bother myself. Like I, I have to be in, the, I have to sing in community. I can't sing, you know, by myself. It has to be with a crew of people. I'm a terrible singer as well, but my husband is musical and so is our daughter. And so there's always music in our house. Um, but we should have, that's what people should do when they're interviewing you about the book is play the Spotify list. Oh yeah. Is that Spotify list a, a real thing? Diane is so amazing. I think um, it's a real thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, if, if you, if you, if you listen to the songs that are quote, I think maybe half the chapters, I don't yeah. know, start with music, a music quote. Yeah. So if you, if you, if you, um, if you listen to the song with the chapter, it actually does fit like mood wise. Totally. We'll have to I don't know if you can listen. Yeah. Say that again. I don't, can, I don't know if you can listen to the um Aquimini, uh <laughs> in chapter one unless you're just really ready for some some diverse stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but uh beyond that it gets a little bit more safe. Yeah, it's okay. It's music, it's a creative process. Um yeah. you're right though about some kind of an intro. Um yes. Hey everyone, um, we're just kind of chatting right now while we wait for a few more people to log on. Esau was talking about the awkwardness of not having an intro on webinars. 
Yeah, just like you have to wait for everyone to kind of log in. Right. And then you have to say, we're waiting for everyone to log in. I was like, well, we got, we got to find something to do with this. Why don't you, I'll ask you something. Yeah. Are you writing a book, Kimberly? <laughs> no. Okay. You should write one. Do you have a book idea for me? <laughs> um, oh, I got, I, got, I, got I, got I got a good title for it. I don't know what the subject matter would actually a good be. A title? Okay, tell me. I'm writing it down. Deco's Declarations. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be like how you think the world should function. Oh, gosh. I don't think anybody wants to hear that. Yes. <laughs> I'll be like Esau said I should do it. Yes. Um, oh, look at it. Someone said that's a blog title, Deco's Declarations. <laughs> yes. I could do a blog. Yes. I could do that. I started, I started off on a blog. Yeah. Uh, and, like, you know. <laughs> and, and here you are today. Yeah. I, and yeah. I made it all the way to, I started on a blog and I made it all the way to the Surge webinar. That shows you. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I'm not sure this is the pinnacle of things for you. I feel like this is it. This, this, you know, like this is the high point of all that I've been doing. <laughs> it's trying to get to this webinar in this moment. The high and point? I, I yes, the high, the high point, point. be when you're in Phoenix. Yes, I was, yeah, I'm supposed to be in Phoenix right now. Yes. Um, and there's this small matter called a pandemic. A pandemic. So instead, I am, I'm safely ensconced in my um my office in Wheaton. And this is kind of a terrible time of year to be in Phoenix anyway. I mean, you had me booked for coming there during the middle of the summer. I know. So. <laughs> and then I got to know you and I realized I liked you and I didn't want to make you come here in August. <laughs> I, I, I will come I will come another time when it is not so hot. Yes. In the winter when it's horrible <laughs> there. Oh yes, the winter sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be yes, like 65 here and aren't, below aren't zero. We so, aren't we, we probably should get started, but aren't we so idealistic? Like one day after a pandemic, we'll just be able to go places and we'll be able to choose it based upon the seasons and I'll yes. come in the winter and think. It's, I'm gonna, like, it's like the new creation, but yeah, you can go ahead and get started. I'm going to be an idealist. I'll do it. Yeah. We have to be a little bit right now, right? In yes. Um, okay. I think... Maybe we should start a blog. Maybe, I mean, not a blog. Maybe yeah. this is the beginning of a podcast. I'll totally podcast with you. <laughs> okay, so go ahead. Um, okay. Hey, everyone. <laughs> I know we'll still have a few people joining us, and it sounds like there might be um, <laughs> a couple weird, glitchy things with the link, but we're going to get started just out of respect for people's time and, and Esau's time. Um, but I'm Kimberly. If I haven't met you, um, I am here in Phoenix. I am a part of the leadership team with the Surge, and then I um, pastor a little Anglican church plant here in Phoenix. And we are super excited to have, I can't call, we're super excited to have Esau McCauley with us today. Um, if you want to call him like his big formal title, the Reverend Dr. <laughs> the Reverend Dr. Esau McCauley. Um, but we're just super excited to have you, Esau. Um, Esau has been just a really good friend and mentor to me um, within our denomination of the Anglican Church in North America. And if you haven't heard, he has a book coming out September 1st. Will you like show us the beautiful book, please? Thank you. Yes. 
Um, and so we just, we've been wanting to, to have Esau come out to Phoenix for a while now. Um, and if you heard us kind of chatting a little bit, um, as you logged in, you heard that, you know, originally we were thinking he would be here in person. And then this, this thing called a global pandemic happened. And so instead we're doing it virtually. And so, um, I'm going to let you Esau give a little more of an introduction to who you are, and then we will, we will begin. Okay. My name is Esau McCauley, like Kimberly told you all. I am a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. I'm an assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. I did my PhD work at the University of St. Andrews, where I studied under the direction of N.T. Wright. I wrote my, my dissertation was published as a book called Sharing in the Son's Inheritance. My second book, the one that we're talking about today, is called Reading While Black. I also write popularly. I'm a contributing writer for the New York Times, and I've also appeared um, regularly in, the, in Christianity Today, and every now and then I sneak into the Washington Post. I'm married. Um, my wife is a pediatrician. We have four Navy reservists and a pediatrician. We have four children who... Um, are the joy of my life even when they are driving me crazy <laughs> is that fair is that an, is that an honest perception i mean ch children are wonderful but they're a lot can we say that <laughs> yes i think there's probably a lot of people saying amen to that yes i just didn't want to front like you know like i just come home and the kids like do everything i say and we just you know pray in the spirit and everything's perfect <laughs> in the macaulay house but we do right. our best we're doing the best we can have kids started back to school there yet well, they're, they shut down the middle school, so that'll yeah. be online. Yep. Um, and the elementary school will be half day. Okay. Yeah. So school in Arizona starts kind of early, started a couple weeks ago, and it's essentially virtual right now. So, okay. So there may, I think I mentioned earlier, there may be a third grader interrupting this webinar at some point, but we'll yes. all do our best. So, okay. Thank you for that intro. Um, just so everybody kind of knows the flow for this afternoon, um, we are going to start with a few questions for Esau and then that I will have for him. And then we're gonna be taking questions. So you can share questions. If you see the Q&A like icon at the bottom of your screen, you can send questions through that. We will likely not get to all of the questions, um, but do please, you can begin sending them now. Um, Esau, I just wanted to start with um, just kind of a general question about what, give us a little summary of your book but then also, what drove you to write it? Okay, yeah. I mean, it's easier to tell the second question first, and then I give you an idea what's going on in the book. Oh, man, I'll try to shorten this version. I'll try to be short. But... If this is your, you talk as oh, much. Oh, okay. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go. I'm going to give yeah. you the whole story. So. so I grew up in, um, you know, they, they say with artists, you have like your whole life to write your first book or your first album, and then like 18 months to write the second one. So this is like the book that I've been writing in a sense my whole life. I grew up in a black church in the South dealing with kind of racism um, and kind of systematic injustice. And I was trying, my whole life was spent trying to make sense of what it meant to be black and Christian in, in America. And as a kid, that really wasn't something that was kind of put in competition with one another. It was actually my blackness that allowed me to function in America. So my Christian faith was kind of this source of hope and so I went to graduate, I went to undergrad from an all black high school to an all white space. Um, and there it was just a, a much different set of questions. And I found myself kind of immersed in the world of white academia. 
And one of the things, it's really hard to tell this story because a lot of black people go to college and they kind of like lose themselves. And then they kind of have this story of finding themselves later in like after some inciting incident. I don't think I ever lost like a sense of kind of black consciousness or a, a sense of pride in the African-American Christian tradition. But it was more like I just began to take on board the questions that were being asked around me. And I was attempting to be a really good scholar in that context. I want to show this is kind of like my early understanding of battling racism was like, well, I can show you that a black person can be just as good a biblical scholar as a white person. So you want to argue with Germans, I'll argue with Germans. You know, this is this is kind of the way that I was thinking about doing my graduate work. You want to talk about justification all of the time? Sure. Here's just your justification argument. And so in 2013, this kind of begins to shift around Trayvon Martin. This is, so this is where my story kind of comes into the American story, where I was kind of immersed in evangelicalism, not in the sense of the drinking the Kool-Aid. I was just like hanging out there. Yeah. And I just assumed, since we believe the Bible, that once Trayvon Martin happened, the Bible talks about justice. Let's, you know, let's do this. It's time for us. To, we, we're writing about this issue. Let's write about that issue. And the kind of pushback that I saw in evangelicalism was like, wow. I'm in a different community than I thought that I was in. And then I began to ask the question, like, why am I spending all of this energy answering these questions that aren't arising from my community? But at that point, I had already been accepted into the University of St. Andrews to do my dissertation. So I said, you know what, I, just go, I need to go and get this PhD. So I kind of put these issues to the side and jumped into what became sharing in the son's inheritance. So three years later, it's towards the back end of that PhD program. We get into reading my black. We get into the back end of that program, and I, it's like 2015, 2016. I call it, for those of you guys who know um, Black history, the second Red Summer. The first Red Summer coming in 19, after, after World War I, and Blacks were coming back, and they were being killed. And I felt like at the back end of the Obama presidency, there was just this wave of kind of anti-Black violence that I was seeing from Scotland. I'm doing my PhD in St. Andrews. And I remember someone coming to me at, at Scotland. It's like, why, are there, why is the military, like, invading black communities it looks like in, if you're in scotland by the way this looks completely crazy because they don't have arm yeah. the same way we do and so i began to think to myself man i have to learn i have to i have to do something about this i have to do something about this using my scholarship and i can't continue to like write things that nobody blacks gonna read so in my in my head i'm thinking eventually I, I, I need to write this book i need to write a book that's going to be focused on the needs of my community in this, in this context, I come back to America, these things, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, all of this is happening. And I remember hearing a, um, an interview, and someone said during the interview, this is not your mom's or your dad's civil rights movement. And it was in the context of talking about Black Lives Matter. And, and, I, and, and, in, and the idea that I heard, I don't know, what the, I don't, I don't know the context, right? This is just like a, a snippet in an interview. And I was like, oh, man, it feels like there's some people who don't see how the Christian faith is relevant to the issues of the day. Yeah. And there's this long legacy of black, because I grew up in it, this long legacy of kind of black advocacy for justice rooted in Christian principles. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I need to kind of do the best that I can to present that to kind of the next generation of people who are coming after us. Um, and so in a sense, when I, this book is the book that I needed when I went to college or when I was going to seminary that tries to talk about the ways in which the process of Bible reading and bi biblical interpretation has been a source of hope for Black people for centuries. 
um, I talk about it in the book that like there is there's this idea that like the only way that we can find our way towards justice is, is through deconstruction of the text. And I want to say that's just not our legacy. Um, there's a legacy is precisely because these texts deconstruct the status quo that they are a source of hope for us. And so what I wanted to do then was write a book. And this, this is kind of like, this even comes from the title and from the title and from the cover art. Yeah. I wanted to write a book to black people, not about black people. Mm. And when I say that is like, there's tons of books that aren't bad that are explaining to white people. This is why racism is bad. This is why you shouldn't be a racist. This is how like white, white people negatively have impacted you know black like there's there's a cottage industry of that yeah and i said you know what like there's other people who can explain it i actually want someone to talk to me right i wanted someone who wrote a book that was like talking to the things that i am concerned with and so what i tried to do was say what are the issues that i think that i wanted to answer for myself mm-hmm. that i think other people might be concerned with um, and that was kind of the origins of reading while black. So the, the, the subject of the book is, is like reading while black, how that's African-American biblical interpretation as an exercise in hope. That's the second part. It's really important for me yeah. An exercise in hope that these texts, the texts of the old and new Testament are, and have been, and can be for black people, a, a, a place to go turn to for comfort, hope, and kind of power to witness before the watching world. Yeah. Sorry, that was the long version of it, but that's how it came about. That's good. I mean, I figure there's a story to it, a reason. Like, I don't, you don't sit down to write a book like this without a story, right? Yeah. It's it's funny because when I started writing it, and this is like, I'm not a big like social media guru or flex person, but this is it's like, I, like, as the book is kind of coming towards its conclusion, like it's starting to come out, yeah. I remember all of the stuff that was um, happening at the time because... When I, I started initially talking about this book in 2016, mm-hmm. um, I think I signed the contract in 2017. And anyone who's ever tried to get a book contract signed is they want to see, will this book sell? Like, right. why should we give you a contract? And when I started to write the book, at the, this is 17. I think by the time I signed the contract, it was 17. They ask you stuff like, what's your social media footprint? And what's your like, um, kind of other stuff? And I remember, like, I think I had, like, 700 followers on Twitter. So I had to go and, like, find, like, I said, but I got 1,500 Facebook friends. I remember trying to, like, convince people, please give me a contract to write this book, even though I'm, like, nobody knows who I was. <laughs> and so, um, it's, so at that time, I think I might have, I think during the process of trying to get the contract, I got my first article, I think, published in Christianity Today. And I was like, oh, I made it now. I got an article in CT. Maybe now they will, like, publish the book. And so it's just really interesting now to kind of see the fact that that there's an actual webinar that people actually care about it these two or three years later and that it feels relevant to the actual moment we're in. So that leads me to kind of see God's providential hand in kind of the composition of the book. Yeah, I mean, and it's like, I think, I think we've talked about this or in a panel we've done together, maybe. Um, I mean, and then we think about like, where we find ourselves right now in this cultural moment. And like, mm-hmm. like you said, yes, kind of post Obama presidency, we've seen changes, and we've seen kind of like this uprising, at least in people um, being more aware of the racial injustices that exist, mostly because of like, video, but then specifically this summer, um, it just feels like this book is especially poignant and prophetic 
Um, How have you kind of experienced that with your book releasing this year? Um, I mean, to be completely honest, oh, man. So I I am very careful about claiming things for God that God didn't do. Yeah. So I don't want people to think that I'm like, you know, so like this ain't the Bible. But I feel like in, in so much as like God can providentially order something, I feel like God like providentially ordered like the topics and the issues in this book. I was having to do the audio book um, for this. So I recorded it myself and I won't be able to find the sentence, but I was reading, I was reading the audio book. And then it says, there's a line in the first chapter, first couple of pages where it says, it feels like um, America has his, his, his knee on the necks of black yeah. and brown people. And I was like, wow. And like, this is like, and so this is how I wrote that in 2017. And, and like, I was George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery are in the background mm-hmm. of me reading the audiobook. Yeah. And then when there are like in the book itself, y'all tell me whether or not it's providential. In the book, in the book itself, there's, there's a chapter on the, on the biblical theology of protest. So how can we think about protest as, as a Christian act? Like, what are we doing now? We're in the middle of like national protest of injustice. There's another chapter in the book about black rage mm-hmm. in the sense of what do we do about this deep anger that we feel as African-Americans for the centuries of injustice that we experience, And how can we process this in a Christian way? Look around like this. is, yeah. And, yeah. and then there's a chapter on policing. There's this happening on, on, on justice. And so when I so when this summer happens, and issues of policing, protest, anger, and justice are all at the, at, the, at, the, at the center of kind of the national conversation. I say, oh, this is the reason, because I felt like these topics were chosen randomly. Like, I mean, there was no like research. I literally sat down. Can I tell you the other, ver- can I tell you the other version how this book got written, Kimberly, the less spiritual version? Yeah, tell us the less spiritual one. <laughs> Here's the less spiritual version. So that, so listen, all that I said is true. This is kind of yeah. like, you got to think of like the four gospels where there's like different perspectives. So yeah. here's the other okay. perspective. Okay. In 2016, I got invited to a Miss Your Alliance event. Mm-hmm. And at this Miss Your Alliance event, you know, I am speaking not on any main stage. They kind of put me in the workshops with the newbies. I never, I had never spoken at a conference before. I didn't even know that Christian conferences were a thing. Like it wasn't necessarily my world. Yeah. And so I was there and I spoke and apparently people like me. And so then I got invited again and again and again. And I found myself somehow booked out for like a year in advance, just like without having any desire to be a conference speaker. Mm-hmm. But then I saw I started going to these conferences and in the conference, um, they would then introduce the people. Right. They would say, here's so and so. And then they list all the stuff that the people had done. And I had done nothing. My dissertation wasn't published. All I had was like my personal blog. And I remember joking, I was going to print out my blog post and like put them in the back because I didn't have anything to sell. And so I said, man, I need to have a book so that when people introduce me, I can at least say I have no book, but I'm working on one. Yeah. So one day after this, these conferences, someone had given a particularly like, um, uh, like fancy introduction like this person's done 15 things and i went and sat down in the afternoon and sketched out all of the topics that would be in reading slavery like what do i want to talk about these Mm -hmm. are the seven issues Mm -hmm. and so like on one perspective you can say like that seems random but like what i did in the afternoon and i didn't have the answers to the questions yeah i just said leasing this 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 and this so then when 2017 2020 happens 
and these subjects that I that I thought up in an afternoon, randomly, yeah. I thought, I can see it's God's providential hand. The last funny thing about like the how this book contract came to be, is like so I got an email from University Press sometime in like, I don't know, late fall 2016. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we heard that you're working on a book. Cause I said that like in my little fake, my little fake bio that I created for myself. <laughs> 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 and I, they said, do you have a sample chapter? And I emailed back and said, I don't have it done yet. It'll be done by Christmas, mm-hmm. which is true because I hadn't started it. So I <laughs> <laughs> so it was actually over the Christmas break that I then went and wrote the okay. chapter on policing that yeah. becomes the basis for the whole sto- the whole like the, the rest of the book. So I do feel like in a real sense like God I hope that God uses kind of this book in this moment to inspire the church to greater faithfulness. Cuz like I'm I'm not that I mean I'm not I am not sufficiently creative to recognize that there will be racial unjust right. arising from policing related to the question of Christianity and social justice and black anger in 2017. Right. To like right. to write that in 2017 to know that was coming in 2020. But I'm just, I just know that God wasn't surprised by what happened in 2020. Yeah. And so he, he was preparing his people, not just me, but other people to yeah. kind of address this moment. Yeah, that's good. Thanks for sharing that. Yes. Um, So you mentioned earlier kind of a part of the motivation for writing this being writing a book for for black people, like the book that you needed when you started college. Um, So I'm curious too, on the other end of that, because I think a lot of the audience, like a lot of the folks that we work with with Surge um, locally are like predominantly white churches. And so, so talk to us a little bit about what this book has to say to white folks who are followers of Christ. So this is, this is, this is great. So let me tell I could talk to you about my teaching, my teaching pedagogy. This relates to why this book is helpful. I teach in a largely white context. Um, But like the work, the narrative world that the students inhabit when you're in my classroom. And I don't think the teachers often know or pastors or preachers, how much their life becomes the narrative world within which the, the church lives and the, and the community lives. So I grew up in the South in an all black context. So all of my analogies are from black stuff, even if the students have no idea what they're talking about. So I might talk about the living, living color. I might talk about a different world. I might talk about whatever it is that comes. I might talk about outcast. And a lot of my white students, when they first hear about it, well, I'll just talk about race all the time because in the black context, you talk about race all of the time. And the students, when they first like get into the class, they're a little bit disoriented. It's like, whoa, whoa, what is all of this? Yeah. But eventually they begin to settle into the world. And the reason I do that, I used to try to, what I used to try to do when I was a teacher was to kind of um, bring, like take myself into the white student world and teach from there. But what I, what I began to recognize is that when I used to be a student, I experienced this kind of cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. I'd walk, or even in an all-white conversation. Like, I've never seen Seinfeld. I've seen, like, two episodes. <laughs> so I hear, like the, like, the soup guy who's always talked about in Seinfeld. <laughs> never seen it, right? Don't watch Parks and Rec. Don't watch all of this stuff. And so I, I'm constantly kind of, well, what's that guy's name, the, the British guy, who with the arms gets cut off in the show? What's the name of that? Like, what? Um, I don't know. It's a flesh wound. It's like some kind of British satire show. They all know what I'm talking about. Um, like Monty, Python. Know, Monty, Monty Python, Monty Python, never oh, seen any Monty Python. Yes. Never seen any Monty Python. 
And so I come into, but I come into white spaces and they just assume cultural encyclopedia. Yes. Um, and, and so I have to learn all of these things to kind of get cognizant of mm-hmm. the people who I'm communicating. And I, and I learned, it's like when you learn a foreign language, you learn it better by immersion. Yeah. And so I understand, I understand white culture from just having to live in it, not from someone saying, this is what white people like, this is what white people don't like. Yeah. And so in the same way, you can sometimes learn a lot more about a culture by listening in where you're not the center of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Because when I try to explain something like that's black to a white person, I translate it. And I say to myself, how much can they understand? How much can they take before it kind of breaks their system? Yeah. And but when I'm in a black space, I just talk. And so actually, if I if I if, if the book captures the ethos correctly, listening into the kinds of conversations are I'm just I'm never ever going to have a conversation with like my white friends about black rage in the same way we're gonna have it with black people. Right. And if you understand the potential real anger that black people feel, you need to just listen in on that conversation and not be the center. And if you don't understand what's going on and you've never heard these things before then that's what it that's what it feels like to be black and white spaces so if my book is like confusing to people and they don't get it part of the like educational pedagogical process is there are worlds in which your questions aren't at the center and even understanding like in order for me to communicate effectively in a white space i got to understand that space and not understanding it by this i'll give you two analogies it's one thing to have a couple talk and everybody's been this way like, it's one thing to kind of see a couple from afar as they present themselves. But then when you go to the house and you have dinner, you really begin to see small things about the interpersonal dynamic. And you kind of go, you know what? That's not healthy. <laughs> you, don't say, you don't say it to them out loud, but you kind of go, wow. Like, I don't like the way that he talks to her. Or like, he, you know, I don't like the way they interact. You know, like, there's something about it. Or you can say, oh, there's a real tenderness and genuine affection here. And so that's what happens when the couple is kind of living life in front of you. Yeah. So the important part of this book for kind of a non-black audience is that best as I can, this is me trying to live my life in front of them without, without the kind of filter. And, yeah. and, this, and I, use, I use the analogy one more time. I, my, my wife was in the Navy. Don't get mad at me. I'm going to tell you how this happened. Okay, Kimberly, can I, can I, can I get can I permission yes. to tell you what actually happened? <laughs> yes. And, and if this is wrong, Kimberly, I'm going to tell you this happened to me. I just hope I'm not going to get in trouble. I, I feel like I'm in a safe space with you. Yes, so they have... <laughs> They have this, like, in the military, most of the, um, my wife's a military officer. Most of the military um, spouses are females, not males. And so when we were deployed, they'd have all of these kind of spousal support programs. And when I first got there, like, the new man shows up, they try to be, like, gender inclusive. So they kind of have a speech. But after a while, they kind of just got tired of doing it. And I remember, like, there's two or three things that happened. Like, they were called Moms and Tots. That was the name of one of the events. Yeah. But they couldn't think of, it wasn't Dads and Tots. It wasn't Parents and Tots. It was Moms and Tots. And then they were talking about, like, when their husbands deployed. And they said, well, you need to make sure that you have your bikini bodies ready when, they, when your husband gets back. And I'm looking, and I was like, I'm not sure this is my lane. But here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. Here's the other thing, Kimberly. I'm going to tell I'm going to tell you. So I'm sitting at the, I'm sitting, I'm the only male at the, um, the, uh, the, the playground. Yeah. And at first, once again, they filtered the conversation because there was a male around, but after about two or three months, I got to hear about how women actually speak when there are no dudes around. Yeah. I didn't know, I didn't know anything about conversations about cycles and all of that, but you know what I got baptized <laughs> into? I learned about it. I yeah. never, I never forget one time I, I didn't, men may not know this 
I didn't realize there's this thing called like when your cycles can sync together. Yeah. When women live together. That was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. Blew my mind. Because you know what men never talk about? Whether or not three women who live together can sync their cycles. Like yeah. I found that out because I was with a bunch of women. And they weren't thinking about yeah. me. They were having their own conversation. And just right. by listening in, I was able to learn. Yeah. And so when I talk about like reading, <laughs> that's a long way from reading while black, but that gives you an, an example of yeah, for sure. you, can learn, you can learn the truth about like, you know, how women talk to one another when they're yeah. not enough. Like I did not count as an, enough of a like male presence to right. make it a, a, a gender inclusive space. Right. It was a female space. And I just sat back and like played with my kid yeah. I didn't know what they were talking about. I just fell back. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good and helpful because it applies to so many areas of our life. Right. Yes. And I think like kind of in the middle there, you said like, listen without being at like the center. And I think yeah. like for, for men and the example you gave for white folks, so often um, things are centered on them and that's yeah. such an important practice. I think especially as followers of Jesus and as we press into what it looks like to stand up for racial justice as people following Jesus. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, and I, and I, and I don't use those, those female analogies lightly. Right. The, the embodied realities of being a woman in America, just like just be becoming friends with like, I never had, I'll give you another example. This, this is, this is the reason why I'm black, but I'm going to talk about women for a second. Yeah. I was like, as a male in new Testament, the, everything was open to me. There was racism, but if there was a dinner yeah. or a conversation or a whatever, it was just natural for me to kind of hang out and chat. Yeah. But I remember when I was doing my graduate work, I'd have a couple of my female friends who we'd end up talking like, you know, in the kind of, I don't know, open area. And they said that a lot of men wouldn't invite them to those spaces. And, but that's where you kind of be able to network to create book projects. Yeah. So the ways in which like their very bodies led them to being excluded from kind of the boys club, mm -hmm. which is where deals and things got done were real. And that's something I had never noticed. Yeah. She said, you realize that there are only like two or three of the people here would talk to me. Mm. especially in like conservative Christian circles. They don't want to be seen talking to a woman. Yeah. And so like, you know what I mean? A woman in kind of a, um, right. a place like that. But those right. are the ways in which in, that never impacted my career. Yeah. But like listening to like how she experiences kind of the world as a New Testament scholar was right. eye opening for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I want to remind you guys, we have one question right now in the Q and A box. Feel free to send questions in. I have a couple more that I'll, um, ask Esau and we'll hit the one um, that is that is in the Q&A box, but then also feel free to send questions in um, for Esau. So one of the things, so this, this webinar today is, is Surge, which is a local network of pastors and ministry leaders in Phoenix. And then it's also some folks who are part of Made to Flourish. And then I think some other like random people too, I told you that we're happy to have with yeah. us, but with Made to Flourish and then also some of the work that Surge does, we're thinking a lot around what it looks like to equip laity, especially outside of like church on a Sunday, which again, yeah. feels super significant right now. And most of us aren't gathering on Sunday, but what does it look like to take the message of Jesus, to take the gospel like outside of church on a Sunday into our everyday lives, like in schools, in the work that we're doing. And I think especially when we think about this in terms of this idea of 
of a lot of what you cover in Reading All Black and, and racial justice, how do we like well equip people who are part of our churches to engage in these conversations in work because it's gonna like it comes up in places of work in their kids' schools, um, in their neighborhoods. So, do you have any any thoughts on that? I think that one of the things that we have to first do is like recognize that like there, there, there's the passage in the Bible where it says like what well, the story that Jesus tells, you know, the, the soldier, the, the king who before he decides to go to war kind of makes a good count of his soldiers to see if he has enough to kind of win the battle. Um, otherwise, he's going to find himself kind of in real trouble. And so I think the first thing we have to understand is that we have to equip our people to count the cost. There is no pain-free change, and there is no self, there's no safe change. Yeah. So if we try to convince, and so I guess the, let me let me give you. I tell people, like, racism is the only sin that we expect to conquer in a short period of time. So we think of something like lust, dishonesty, all of these things are things that are like lifelong processes that we're always struggling with as Christians, right? You don't say like, I overcame dishonesty. I never lied again. You can become more honest, but there's always going to be this tendency to kind of um, uh, go back into kind of other ways of living. And, but, but here's the thing, the life of integrity, the life of integrity is dangerous. It could cost you something financially, right? Mm -hmm. To like, to, it can cost you like integrity costs you something. And so, if you want to talk about like how do we equip people, the first thing we have to do is don't treat racism and injustice like a checklist. Yeah. It's a lifestyle. It has to become a part of your Christian discipleship that you that, that exists alongside. I mean, I'm 40 years old. My mom is still parenting me, not yeah. in the same way, but I still call her. She's not done. With, she don't. She's not done with this. Right. <laughs> and she's not gonna be done with me for the rest of her life. <laughs> yeah. What I'm saying is like there's a part of us that's going to have to be engaged in um, this work. So the first thing I talk about is a real commitment rooted in the worldview, not rooted in guilt, right? If you just feel guilty because you saw George Floyd, that guilt goes away. Mm. But if you say, you know what, this is what I think God's kingdom is supposed to be. Yeah. And it's a part of my commitment to that kingdom. I commit to these practices. It's going to, um, it's going to um, bear fruit. The second thing is I'll talk about danger. And what I mean is, like, people who get involved in this process, some people are going to lose themselves, right? There's no casualty-free engagement in issues and justice. This is messy, right? This is a yeah. messy work. Think about, for example, some people who decide to – let's talk about marriage. Let's use marriage as a good example. Marriage is a Christian good. But you've seen people whose kind of spiritual lives have been wrecked by unhealthy marriages. Mm -hmm. Like, marriage is dangerous, Especially if like one of the persons in the marriage is toxic and they use their faith to kind of harass. It, it, it's what I'm saying is there is no practice in the Christian life that comes without like potential benefit damage to the one's spiritual life. And so if you're going to talk about being engaged in issues of race and justice with all of these competing ideas and issues and perspectives, everybody who goes into this isn't going to come out on the other end in this healthy, some people are going to go, too far one way some people are going to go the other side the other way but yeah. that's how christianity is right christianity isn't this safe thing that protects you from the world it's the way to engage the world and so to engage in issues of justice is in some sense to embrace the chaos that goes on around you in the same way there's competing very there's competing visions of marriage 
There's competing visions of singleness. There's competing visions of what it means to be a parent. There's com competing visions of how to, how to run your business. So there's competing visions of justice, some of which are healthy and some of which are unhealthy. Yeah. And so it, what tends to happen only in issues of justice is we say, you know what? I think these two possible outcomes are bad. Therefore, I'm going to withdraw from the whole conversation. We don't do that with marriage. Well, well, if I get married, these two things can happen. Therefore, I'm going to withdraw. To be, to be honest, some churches, sorry, I'm going to say some churches construct ideologies of marriage where they put men and women in situations that are doomed to failure that does damage. That happens. In the same way that some people talk about justice in ways that does damage to people's spiritual lives. But that doesn't invalidate the concept itself. And so what some people say, I'm not going to get involved in, in justice issues until there's one version of justice that all Christians everywhere agree upon, and we all kind of go lock, stock, and barrel. But that doesn't happen in any other field. And so what we try to do as best as we can is to understand, develop as healthy a practice as we can, and be engaged in the work. And that work is always dangerous. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always dangerous. And so I don't want to, I don't want you to say like, you're right. There's a way of saying, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. I'm afraid of doing the wrong thing. So I'm just going to pull out. But what you're just saying is that the danger of being biblically faithful is too great. Grateful. Mm -hmm. It's like bearing a talent. I'm just going to hold on to this little bit of the gospel that I got until Jesus comes back. And I don't, and, and I, and I, and I think that Jesus might say, I can't speak for Jesus. He might say, I gave you this whole robust yeah. kingdom gospel. And you shrunk it down to the few kind of seeds that you could hold on to until I came back. Yeah. And so that's what I want to say. Like, I think they really have to embrace like that it costs something mm -hmm. and that it's danger It's dangerous, but it's a part of what God's plan is for his people. Yeah. That's a good word. I think for all of us in different ways, so much of it is about, it's like developing this, gosh, this muscle. If I'm going to write something, it's going to be about this. Like for some right? Declaration uh, one number one. There we go. <laughs> um, like develop Deco's, Deco's Decalogue. Look at this. I can do <laughs> this <you> all day. <laughs> I have my husband to thank for the last name. Yes. Um, but it's, you know, it's developing like this ability to suffer, to count the costs, um, to like remain in hard things. Um, yeah. And, and I also want to say that like the church, all bills eventually, like this is one, this is my one Macaulayism that I stole from somewhere else, but it just like, it applies. All bills eventually become due or come due. Mm. And the church is paying the cost right now yeah. for its historic failure to actually construct. When I talk about the church, I mean the global church, not right. the global church. Actually, I'm talking about the white church in North America. Let me, yes. let me, let me, yep. white church in North America. We did, they did not construct a healthy theology of justice. That, that would push back on all of the things that were done in the, in the name of Christianity. Yeah. That didn't allow kind of systems of injustice to be baked into the system and to make large swaths of white America resistant to the, even the question. Mm -hmm. That means that there's consequences for this. All heresies eventually do damage. Yeah. And what we're seeing right now, if you're saying there's like, I don't like these unbiblical like accounts of justice, it's because there wasn't a biblical one that like, the majority of white Christians were willing to ascribe to during the antebellum period, during Jim Crow, during um, the civil rights movement, during the 80s, during the 90s. So you can't just say no, 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 no to justice for 150 years and then say, well, I don't like the version that gets constructed. Well, that's because you opted out of the conversation. Yeah. And now 
the pain that people are experiencing and the alienation of their youth. Mm-hmm. Alienation of their youth are the bills that are coming due. And I'm not celebrating that. I'm just saying like we're now reaping the whirlwind that we've sown and that, that pain and the confusion. So when I talk about students going out into dealing with issues of injustice and losing themselves, right. part of the reason that they're losing themselves is they couldn't find themselves in justice in the church. And they're now trying to make sense. They're trying to on the fly bring their Christian faith and these things in the conversation. And they're not always doing a good job. And that's because we didn't do it for them. And yeah. what we did do for them was to tell them a lie. Like the problem isn't that big, mm-hmm. right? What we tried to do is say, let me kind of reify the American story and give kind of a slight nod to there's some bad things, but yeah. kind of give yeah. this like rosy perception of reality. And they're coming face to face with the truth about what this country did and is doing. And the story that they were, they hold, they told, they were told in churches doesn't hold. And so now that bill is coming due and you got to actually pay that full bill. Yeah. While we construct something that's healthier. And if we don't pay it now, we do what they've done like every generation, you keep pushing it down the road. Mm-hmm. Then the bill keeps like the interest keeps growing. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why like, and, and people can say like, there's a reason why there's a, such an inherent distrust for portions of the white church because like they just weren't like people know what happened and nobody i'm going to say this to the like the, to the audience nobody believes this alternative account of like nobody believes the story that that they're telling but them so it's becoming a smaller and more, smaller circle of people who kind of adhere to this myth about what happened in this country and nobody outside of it not even other christians yeah Right. When the whole black church is saying it didn't happen that way. Right. Then what do you expect young people to do? Mm-hmm. So you pay the bill and you construct something that is healthy and you deal with the economic out, um, um, implications of it. Yeah. Because when you tell the truth, the truth always costs you something. You tell the truth and you're going to lose donors and you're going to lose yeah. members, but you're going to create a congregation in the long run that is actually faithful to the scriptures. I tell people you're either, Lead, you got to be wise now. You got to be wise. Mm-hmm. You're either leading your church by an opinion poll, mm-hmm. right? Or you're leading your church by the scriptures and the gospels. And so yeah. once, I, once I've shown you, or people have shown you, these are what the scriptures say. If you then say, well, I can't implement these things in my congregation because of the, because of the, 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 like, the pushback I'm going to get, then you're not leading the church based upon the Bible. Then be honest about it. Be honest. Say, I am, I'm leading my church based upon the plausibility structure created by a conservative understanding of kind of Americanness that I can't push back on because it's an idol in my congregation. Tell yeah. the truth. Yeah. And then don't try to tell black people to come in those spaces. Yes. Just let us go. Say, look, we, if you want to accept this, come in, but I can't punt. I can't push back on this. Even if this is oppressive to you, because I got to keep these 15 tithers. Mm-hmm. Just say it. Tell yeah. the truth. That's good. Sorry for the people that surge who that hurt or be a bridge. What does it be? I shouldn't say that. No, oh, surge and made to flourish. Made Um, to flourish. No, I mean, I'm I'm thinking of be the bridge. I don't know why that's in my head. It's because it's it's good and relevant right now, too. Um, No, that's good. I mean, and those are like, those are the prophetic words that we all need to hear. And sometimes they're hard and we might be offended, but it's okay, right? I mean, that's a part of. Like, 
Yeah. I am not. If if Serge, um, if y'all want to invite me to tell you how to grow your church, I'm really bad at that. I can tell you how to shrink it. I can tell you how to sh- I'm I wanna be I wanna be called a church shrink expert. <laughs> and, and 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 I say that and I say that and I, and, I, and that may seem way too flippant. What I wanna say is like if there's a black person, just think about this. If there's like, let's say you have a church of 200 people and there's five to seven black, maybe there's two black families there. Yeah. And they see kind of what happened with George Floyd. Let's just use it as an example. Mm-hmm. And they come to the congregation, they come to church that Sunday. Yeah. And they're hurting. And they're asking the question, does my pastor care about me? Mm-hmm. The pastor, if he's aware has seen George Floyd on the, on Sunday. And the pastor has two competing groups in his mind. He knows about these two black families and he knows about the people in his congregation who, for whom any discussion of police injustice mm-hmm. is liberalism. Yeah. Or kind of cultural Marxism or theological kind of heresy. And these two people, and I'm not saying these, these two people, you cannot minister to both of them at the same time. Yeah. You cannot not offend this person and minister to this person. Right. So you can be as, and, and, I'm, not, and I'm, talking, I'm talking about the truth of the gospel. Yeah. If you speak to the needs of this family, then some people are going to get upset. Mm-hmm. And so what tends to happen is we try to do some kind of pastoral care over here and not offend the people over here. Mm. And the people of color in your congregation are savvy enough to know what you're doing. Yeah. And so I'm not saying that you have to like intentionally alienate like people in the congregation. I'm talking to you about like the math that is going on in families of ethnic minorities in majority culture churches. Mm. And I've seen over and over and over again that the decision is made on behalf of the, like, not to say the things that they know that they cannot say. Right. And what I want to say to you is that if that is the actual motivation, not your own convictions, not what the scriptures say, but that fear, that is, that is pastoring by opinion poll. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it. Yeah. I've seen people come to me privately and say, Esau, I believe this, that, and the other. I said, well, telling me, I don't need you to, t- I don't need you to text it to me, preach it. Yeah. Say what you say in the, we say in the South. Say it with your chest. <laughs> if you feel it, yeah. say it. Yeah. Sorry. I'm homilizing now. It's good and it's helpful. I mean, I think these are the things, especially that pastors and people leading like churches and ministries need to hear and the questions that we hear come up. Um, I, I, I'm gonna, I think every church has to decide. Yep. In every denomination. And I say this to the Anglicans too. If there are yes. any Anglicans here. We have to decide what kind of church we want to be, and we got to be honest about it. Yeah. Don't try to yeah. fool people. Don't try to fool people. Yeah. If you believe this, if you believe this way, just be that way. But don't tell us to come. Yeah. Amen. All right. You ready for a couple of questions from the I'm audience? I'm ready for two and right. Um. So, so one quick question we had was about: Will it be on Audible? And the answer is yes. Eloise. So yes. I, yeah. I recorded the Audible. Um, yeah. This is what you can do. If anybody wants it on Audible, because they feel like the author, they don't listen to me. But if y'all at InterVarsity and say, we want to have the pre-recording available to, you know, on audio, Audible, they'll get it up there sooner. Okay. It's currently supposed to come out on August, no, September 
22nd, I think, is when it's due. But if you harass them and say, can we have the Audible <laughs> link up for pre-order, they would then go to people. So but I'm the author. So, so for example, y'all, it was the people who moved the, the, the date. The book was supposed to come out in September. A lot of y'all complained, and they moved the book up to, so it was supposed to come out in November. Right. It got moved up to September. So yeah. if you all complain, you are in control. You are the people. Um, so if you want the Audible for pre-order, say, put it on, you know, Amazon or Audible. Because I, I did my job. Yeah. It took me three days to record it, which actually takes, it's a lot harder than you think. And I realized that my sentences can get a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, before you write a book, make sure that you can pronounce all the words that you can spell. <laughs> I, can, I say, <laughs> can I say that? Yeah. It's a, a good tip for people. A good yeah. insider tip. Yeah. All right, cool. There's some, um, there was some, there's some Latin in there. And I was like, oh man, I don't even know how to pronounce any of this. I just knew the Latin phrase. <laughs> And some Spanish. So, like, I was like, okay. So, if by the way, if there are any Latina or Latino brothers and sisters there, if I butcher the Spanish phrase that I had in there, blame Google Translate. It wasn't me. I did the best that I could. Google so Translate's, like, the worst. Google, Google Audio. No, not the translator. Like, oh. when you click on the – and it tells you – it pronounce. I knew the phrase. I know. Got it. I, it's <laughs> like, I'm a scholar. I mean, like, we know written Spanish. Just pronouncing it is tricky. Yes. So I pronounce it the best way I can in the audio book. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, so another question, and this is something I know you've written on too. So feel yeah. free to also like refer people to this. But um, yeah. <laughs> what, what should the response be when people bring up critical race theory and cultural Marxism? You say you don't love black people. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Okay, let me let me let me let me say a couple of things about that. Yeah. Um there are a variety of ways in which people find ways not to discuss the thing itself. There's an endless stream of distractions. Um you can go back and like this is true. I I posted a quote by Fannie Lou Hamer in 1965. Yeah. Where she said they accused Fannie Lou Hamer of communism for talking about um, voter registration in the South, 1965. They, they accused King of communism and the Southern mm -hmm. Christian Leadership Council during the Civil Rights Movement of being influenced by communists. Now, here's the question. Does anybody 50 years later think that what mo motivated Martin Luther King was communism? No. So then why did they say it was communism at the time? Because the Red Scare has been deployed against Black claims for justice for literally 100 years. This is what, I mean, like, that's just what happens. And so on one level, you can, the, the first question is, I would say, explain to me how the difference, the communist accusation that is being leveled against black and brown people now are different from the, the, the accusations being leveled against black people in the 1950s and 60s. And how is it, how is it, how can you explain to me how you're not falling into that trap? Explain yeah. to me the accusation then, what was false about it, what's true about this one. The second thing that I would say, and this is, this is kind of the more like, um, insidious like form of the critique and i want to say this as clearly as possible i think the accusation of critical race theory as a universal like explanatory thing is rooted in racism and this is what i mean anytime you read about critical race theory this is what you hear you hear like this long history of development of ideas beginning in europe making their way through their Karl marx you know industrial revolution it kind of floats into the united states and then it kind of moves along and then in the 1960s and 70s black people hear about it in the context of, of james cone liberation theology mm -hmm. and then boom 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 yeah. and so the whole point the, the long 
the long tail of that is the same. Black people are actually parroting a modified version of something a white European said a hundred years ago. In that story, there are no black people until the 1960s. Now here's the question that you can ask yourself. Can the person who just outlined that history of ideas mm. outline the actual development of black Christian and secular thought beginning at the same period, mm. right? Go back to the foundation of the black church in the 17th and 18th, 1700s and develop how black Christian thought actually develops. What happens when black Christian thought does actually encounter kind of Marxism and goes in one direction versus going in the other direction. And what you'll see is this. You'll see that some of the things that are said in critical race theory are things that black Christians were saying before Karl Marx walked this earth. Mm. And so, I mean, re I promise you, if, if, if Frederick Douglass were walking the, the world today, he'd be called a critical race theorist. Yeah. Like, read What to the Slave is the Fourth of July and ask yourself, what is that other than a, a critique of American rel religiosity and injustice rooted in a claim of it being fundamentally hip hypocritical? Mm -hmm. And so because they don't understand how the history of Black cr Christian thought actually develops, they have no category for Black criticism other than a white person told them that. And it, what is that other than paternalism and racism? Yeah. Paternalism and racism, full stop. Yep. It is racist. Now, are there Black critical race theorists? Of course there are. But it is not this universal explanatory thing that can be lumped. Basically, critical race theory is, here's something that a Black person said about justice that I don't like. Mm -hmm. The third question you can ask is, who is the Black person? whom you disagree with about justice, who's not always a, also a critical race theory or is an, a completely overlapping category, right? Yeah, yeah. Black people who I disagree with who are critical race theorists and black people who get it who are not. So can someone, agree, someone disagree with you about race and injustice fundamentally and not be a critical race theorist? Yeah. And the answer to that question is almost no, because the four or five black people who they are going to say, these are black people who get it, are the black people who most closely approximate their views. So yeah. in other words, there's the truth, located largely in kind of a certain segment of white conservatism mm -hmm. and critical race theory. Mm -hmm. And I just find that to be intellectually lazy and not impressive. And the fourth thing, which we actually talked about it, if we want to really go there, critical race theory is not a worldview in the same way that people talk about it. It's yeah. a series of analytical tools used to talk about the ways in which systems of oppression still existed after the laws of the civil rights movement. Right? So when they start talking about things, let me give you one example. Let me give you one example. One. So the, the word whiteness, right? The word whiteness is like super controversial um, and like people get really in their feelings about it. But I don't think people actually understand enough of history to understand why this phrase exists. White is not what we would think of as this kind of like clearly delineated category that everyone agrees with. Whiteness was defined by law. Like who was white and who was not white? And being defined white by law gave you access in America to certain customs and privileges. So mm -hmm. once you have segregation, the question becomes, well, who is a part of the benefit, benefiting class and who's not a part of the benefiting class? And so you have laws in the United States. I think it's Tukagawa versus California, the United States, where different ethnic Asians are, are suing the United States to say, well, am I classified as white or am I classified as kind of an ethnic minority? And in every case, the the United States government, the Supreme Court, and the California Supreme Court said, you are not white. And because you're not white, you don't get these privileges that God gave us. Mm. And so whiteness then is a legal category. It still exists in the United States, right? Yeah. What is the actual logical reason that like a person with one drop of black blood is black in America versus white? Right. Why? 
Why? Why is this like, why is this kind of purity legally protected? Mm-hmm. And so now what, what you then do with that category, people can talk about it in a variety of ways that are helpful and unhelpful, but white as a legal category that conveyed benefits was something that existed. And so here's the question then, once you take away those laws, do all of the benefits that have accrued to whiteness in public society automatically go away? And the answer to that question is clearly no. Because yeah. let, me give, let me give you one example. Let me give you one example. Look anywhere. The biggest predictor of people who are going to go to college and get a college education is the college education of their parents. So if your parents are educated statistically, you have a higher likelihood of being educated. If your parents are middle class, you have a higher, le- higher chance of being middle class. Now, what happens then if because you were black by law, into the 1960s and 70s, it was illegal for you to get a quality education. Yeah. Then privileges associated with your skin color were accrued to you educationally. And then when you had children, those children, because of laws, mm. right, had certain advantages. And so these are the ways which these, now can anyone go to a college? Yes, yes, it's, now they can. But to say that there's no long-term financial implications right. to that, it's just denying history. Yeah. And so- to talk about um, whiteness as a category that historically conveyed privilege, that still has remnants in American culture, it is one way of talking about like what happened in America. Yeah. Now that's a sociological term. That's not a theological term. Can a Christian use it? I mean, sure. Do I use it most of the time? No. Because let me explain something to you. When people talk about like when people talk about this, this is the last one. I'll talk about this. People talk about rejecting whiteness. They're talking about rejecting whiteness. What they're talking about is rejecting those privileges that have accrued because of that. Now, the reason I don't use that language personally very often is because even though I understand the sociological categories, there is something about saying rejecting whiteness that at least conveys to me emotionally, you messed up by being born white. I get the emotion from that. I get it. Now, on one level, some people might say, deal with the emotion, right? and kind of process it but as a christian i find like i can say other things than like reject whiteness i don't necessarily find that to be the language that i have to use to be able to communicate the idea yeah. but the idea that there are privileges that exist that, are, that can that have accrued a certain segment of society that then need to be rejected seems to me to be from a from a historical perspective true mm-hmm. the alternative to that the alternative to that, which a lot of churches do, is to say, you know what? There are no privileges that have accrued to us that are significant. Therefore, let's not have this conversation. Yeah. What I want to say to them is nobody believes this except for the 25% of like America that is like white and evangelical. But mm-hmm. I people don't believe it. Right. And the secularists don't believe it. Right. And so like this hostile uh, kind of rejection of this stuff isn't very helpful. So do I think that like critical race theory um, is vital to kind of understanding racism in America? Not necessarily because most of the things, this is common grace. Mm. Most of the things that, that critical race theorists say are things that like are already themselves somewhere in the Christian theological tradition. And as much as it's, it's in other places, right? And so long before there was something called like rejecting whiteness, there were people talking about anti-black racism in America. Yeah. So I, as someone who's a biblical scholar, don't feel that I have to adopt the nomenclature and the sociological categories of like that area mm-hmm. in order to talk about racism because that's not my field. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what I try to do is, as a, as a biblical scholar and a theo- as a theologian is to use the categories that I know well. Yeah. 
you come for me. We're not going to argue about words. Mm. We're going to argue about these things themselves. Yeah. And so do I, do I necessarily use critical race theory in my scholarship intentionally? No. Is there a word or a phrase here or there that I find that's potentially helpful? Um, that's possible. That's possible. Um, I don't want to say that because I don't go through my work and say, is there a hint of critical right. race theory somewhere? Right. And that's not yeah. how I do it. Well, yeah. But I really, want, I really want people to understand it's like a lot of be careful of people who give intellectual histories with no black people before 1965. Yeah, that's good. I think that is super helpful. I saw, I think Matt Tebby commented that you just give a master class on critical race theory. <laughs> um, and I think it's so important because it's, I mean, I know, like, I feel like everyone is having to kind of respond to that. And so it's so yeah. good to have you flesh that out a little bit. Um, I want to try to get to a few more questions. All right. Yes. One, I'll take, I'll give you some more time. Um, one that we could like talk about for yeah. forever, but I think you can actually give us like a succinct yes. view to think. I'll of. be, I'll be brief. People asked about is, um, just like some besides you, who are some black theologians that people should be reading? Um, well, can I, can I encourage you to like listen to black preaching of an extended period of time? Uh, we tend to be like a bookish culture yep. when a lot of the black ecclesial tradition, is, the black theological tradition is ecclesial. And let me explain to you really briefly why. Right. For, yeah. for the most part, people weren't trying to publish like, like there's kind of a whole, think of someone like John Piper who doesn't, he's not in, he's not in the academy, who's able to pu publish tons of books. Um, but there weren't people who were publishing like large publishers who are publishing kind of like black pastoral theology mm -hmm. in kind of easily accessible ways. And so the best way to understand kind of what's the actual day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month kind of lived experiences of black churches is to actually a, like, I mean, if there was not a pandemic, you could attend yeah. one. But I would say like um, find some black pastors and listen to them preach and listen to the way that they talk because they're talking to black people. Yeah. And, and you're not at the center of the conversation. And so I have a friend of mine, Charlie Dace. He's one of my favorite preachers in America. I'll listen to him. There's another guy named Watson Jones. This is the people in Chicago. You can just kind of go to the Ann campaign, um, their website. This is an organization I'm affiliated with. And just find the pastors who are associated with them and commit yeah. to saying, I'm going to listen to two or three of these pastors every week and like learn from them. Yeah. Um, that's so great. that's that that would be like I always tell people it's almost like how do you become an Anglican? Well, sure, you can read about the Book of Common Prayer and but sometimes you gotta just pray the office, pray the liturgy. Yeah. And like read the church fathers yeah. and church mothers. Yeah. So you want to become a patristic person, read read the read the primary sources. And so I'm gonna encourage you go 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 back and listen to King's old sermons. Yes. And not just the political ones. When he was in Dexter Avenue, when he's actually preaching to his congregation. Mm -hmm. That's good. Thank you. Um, okay, what else? I right. like Q&A. Okay, so here's one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read like all of it because I think that even some of just the commentary in it, it's, it's good. So it says, I know many Black people are tired, exhausted, even traumatized as they continue to navigate white spaces. Do you think some of them need to leave those white spaces and create new spaces? Or would you want to encourage them to stay in white spaces? How do you, Esau, personally navigate being in a predominantly white space right now? How do you stay emotionally and spiritually healthy? It's a lot, but it's good. Um, so just talk to us a little bit about that. I know you could do, write a book on that. Um, 
I can't give a single answer to somebody. Yeah. Um, that they're, and I want to say that the cost is real. Yeah. That um, we, in our tradition, continue to lose um, black clergy. Yeah. We had we had a few who've left us this summer, um, precisely because of this fact that they could no longer exist in those spaces. And there are black people who are just sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm-hmm. And so if you're in a place where that is you, then um, like, I don't, I don't tell people to stay when yeah. like yeah. they're emotional, like they just can't, that's just not for them. Yeah. What I, what I do want to say for me personal and, and one, can I say this thing too? Mm-hmm. It's because and I almost wrote a tweet about this, but I didn't delete it. I deleted it. Cause I, I can get the words right. Like people treat racism like a personal sin, like lying or cheating that we just kind of deal with as a part of the community, not an actual heresy that needs to be eradicated. And sometimes people just expect black people just to put up with racism as a price of community. And and, and so what I try to tell my tradition is like, this is the cost. Um, And so why do I stay? There's two reasons. One is I actually believe the scriptures are true that like the Bible presents this picture of us living together mm-hmm. and anything that you want to pursue that's biblically faithful is going to cost you something. Yeah. And so right now that's a price that I'm willing to pay. The second reason is like, to be honest, like you, you have to like your theological convictions have to like sometimes outweigh your emotions. Mm-hmm. Right? If sometimes like you get to the place where like I am theologically convicted about this is what marriage is. So assuming no abuse and those other kinds of things, we can work this out because we're committed to one another. And so like, I have certain theological convictions as to how I want to live my Christian life and the Anglican way is the way in which I want to live that. Now the Anglican church could like, I think there's, there's, there, there comes a period of time in which a functional heresy becomes sufficient even if it's not like documented as such right mm-hmm. you can talk about this yeah. so like if if an organization becomes effectively racist even if it's like doctrinal commitments are towards like whatever but it just it's just fundamentally racist then that's a heresy in yeah. the same way that any other heresy you can say you know what i'm tired of living with this particular heresy that is doing damage to my family and so i don't know if i have advice as to like how people can deal with it i can say that it costs us something I can say that um, it's hard sometimes to kind of see progress. Um, but I think that at least in my tradition, we are making progress, even though it's painful. Yeah. And so one of the things that really happens with a lot of ethnic minorities in these spaces, they cease to be able to see the good and they can only see kind of the pain. Mm-hmm. And in that case, like, and they kind of become cynical or bitter yeah, because of rightful sin. And if that's the case, then they might need to do something else. So I would say also like have places of retreat. Like when you like, yeah. you know, I'll call or text Kimberly or some other people when things kind of get rough. And as long as all of us don't have a bad day at the same day, then we can kind of continue on. Yeah. And the last thing I'll probably say is there, I mean, there are spaces that are healthier, but I don't know if there's a utopia. Right. And I am very hesitant about, I think there's something, this is the Anglican tradition, there's something Benedictine about stability. And I think that you can make a couple of moves in your life as a Christian 
But at a certain point, you have to say, this is the community to whom God has given me. Mm-hmm. And I got to do the best of what I can here, even when it's never going to become the kingdom. Because you can get to this place of like going, like you can, you can take a piece of each community that you liked and then hope to construct the perfect thing, right? I want the, for me, I want the liturgy of Anglicanism, the social consciousness and the, and the orthodoxy and the orthopraxy of the black church, the kind of the funding of evangelicalism to have 50,000 ministries and 50,000 staff yeah. Along with the social, the social, the, the public acceptance of progressive Christianity, and that's the church that I want. Mm. But nobody, that church doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And if you went to that church, they probably wouldn't like you because you wouldn't be cool enough. <laughs> and so for me, you have to at a certain point accept the inadequacy of any given church and do the best that you can to um, make it to be a fa- to be a faithful witness within it. Yeah. And what I'm trying to do right now is to be a faithful witness within my context. Um, because I have, I put in the time here to have the influence and the commitment. And sometimes people only change when they know that you love them enough to tell them the truth. Mm. Right. So. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Um, let's see. I'm going to try to just I'm gonna try to do. Sorry, one. I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not quick enough. No, you're good. I mean, we want, like, we want these to be like full answers that are, yeah. Well, I mean, this won't be the only time we'll talk to you. So. Okay. We'll save the questions we don't get to today for another time. Okay. Um, let's see. It's hard to choose. Um, how would you address um, the Black church that wants to spiritualize the structural racism and discourages parishioners to become activists? And this is from a sister in Phoenix who's been here forever, who's a part of a, a black church tradition. There are, there isn't like, sorry, in, in the book I gave you three, but there's yeah. actually four strands. I've, I've, I re- it's funny when you re- you finish a book, you yeah. recognize adequacies of it. There's kind of four, tr- four strands of kind of the black Christian tradition as it relates to activism. I call one of them kind of the black nationalist strand. You think of someone like um, Nat, Nat, Nat Turner. Yeah. There's then kind of like, I call it the revolutionary strand, which is more like Martin Luther King, revolutionary brotherhood. Let's kind of transform America. Then there's two forms of what she's talking about. Not to know which one. Um, and I, in the book, there's only one, but it's actually split into two. I call it accommodationalist. Mm-hmm. This, these are black churches that kind of like adopt the posture of the majority culture. And they kind of reap the benefits of pushing back on the rest of the black church. Mm-hmm. that's like version one of that there's actually another version that i didn't give credit to in the book is i call it like black pietism this is what she sounds like she's describing they're not accommodationless they're just like so heavenly minded and so it's kind of spiritual like holiness focused they don't have anything to say about like the present moment yeah and their way their kind of posture towards the world is let's just get folks saved and they might even understand that the world is racist but they don't want to deal with it because they think of it as a distraction from the gospel Mm-hmm. If that is the kind of community that she's talking about, then slowly helping the pastor like understand or the people in the congregation understand that these things are biblical. Yeah. Uh, are um is probably the best way forward. So the book that I try to outline is actually deal with some of these issues. How can I think about these things from a biblical perspective? Um and interestingly enough, even during the civil rights movement, King got pushback that when King was um, trying to run for the head of the national Baptist convention or, or get control of it in his, his time, 
the person who was running against King had a um, slogan that said, from protest to production. Mm. He's saying like, all this marching in the streets isn't getting us anything. We need to go and do this. Yeah. And so there's always been a strand of the Black Christian tradition that wasn't, that wasn't here for that activism. And that's an ongoing conversation. And so I don't know if it's easy to like convince a church of that other than doing kind of the slow work of helping them recognize the importance of it. A lot of those churches, and this happens with King too, they're not the first adapters, but they're kind of the second and third wave. So now a lot of the people who, King ends up starting the Progressive um, Baptist, Progressive National Baptist Convention because his his convention rejected protest. But now both convictions both conventions are like public about social justice. And so it's kind of sometimes the, there's a wave of the black church that kind of adopts kind of the fruit of that work after it's gone. Mm. And then they kind of come along later. And so your kind of, that congregation could be a, one of those congregations that kind of adopts like the, the um, kind of want to reap the benefit of having the black church ethos. Mm-hmm. Or the other one is just like the other version is they're just like, trying to reap the benefits of not being a troublemaking black church. Yeah. And there's always some economic and cultural and social benefit from being kind of the status quo, especially if it's the black middle class. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to talk about that issue directly other than to say, we tend to view the black church through it's like primary two lenses of the nationalistic version, the revolutionary version. And then we don't really talk about kind of the other two parts. Yeah. And sorry, historically, a lot of the pietistic strand comes from Black Pentecostalism and the Black holiness tradition. That's where a lot of that kind of strand of like, let's just love Jesus and wait for the kingdom to come. But even that, even that strand now, years later, is doing better. Sorry, that was a long historical answer, but I hope no, that was helpful. I'll that's... answer another question. I'll answer one more. Can I give you one more? <laughs> yeah, totally. No, that was good, okay. Esau. Um, okay, let's see. It's, it's so hard. These are great questions, you guys. It's hard to choose what to go with next. Um, okay, so one question. Okay, and I think you address this a bit, but I think this is a good one in some ways even to end on because it brings us back to your book a little bit. Okay. Um, how is reading the Bible while Black different um, than reading it while anything else? Oh, yes, that is a good question. So this, let, me, let me answer by asking you all a qu- this question. Anybody who's preached to a congregation, preached to a congregation, thinks about the people who are there. When I was, um, when I was uh, 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 learning preaching, my, my um, professor said, you have to, in, your pool, in, your, in your study, you have to populate your, the room, people who you're going to preach to, if you preach to the single mom or the middle-class family. having So you think about these people as you construct the sermon. If you have, if you, you know, if you have one text in front of you and you're going to preach to middle schoolers, you're going to address, address a different set of issues. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with that. You take that same text and you ask a bunch of young singles, different sermon. If you take that same text and then you preach it to a elder, a, 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 a um, elderly care facility, different texts because in your head you're saying what do the people who are 70 years and older who've experienced these things who are dealing with this kind of these experiences how does the bible speak to them so everybody every preacher is doing socially located biblical interpretation everybody is 
And what happens is when it's white, when it's like, when you're thinking, when I think, when you, trust me, when you write your sermon, you're thinking of a largely white congregation. Mm-hmm. You're not thinking of like the black people who are on the other side of town. You're not preaching to them. You're preaching yeah. to your people. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're engaging in socially located interpretation, but you just think it's natural. Mm-hmm. You think that like, that's natural. Mm-hmm. So when I say, what do these texts mean for African-Americans? I'm engaging in the same process that everybody is. Yeah. But I'm just being explicit about it. Yeah. And so I'm yeah. saying, how do the biblical text is God's word to us, like influence the way that we read the Bible? But here's the other thing too. Our social location screens out certain things, certain questions we don't ask, right? So a perfect example that, that, that we talk about is in the, like, the, the, the slavery, anti-slavery debates. Um, we tend to think that like, well, this is just two objective readings of the Bible. Well, no, like the slave masters had a vested interest in finding Bible passages that supported the dehumanization of black people. So they said, look, here's this like second Timothy passage or whatever. But then when they, when they, when they gave the Bible to the slaves, they talked about how 60% of the Bible was cut out as being inappropriate for the slaves to read. Why? Did they not want them to read that? Because they knew that if they read those passages, then their interpretation couldn't stand. Mm-hmm. But when the slave said, well, what does this Bible actually say about my freedom? That's the question that they brought to the text. And then they read the book of Exodus and they say, well, hold on. God's character is one who liberates. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're saying, sure, that, that may seem like an obvious reading to you. It wasn't obvious to 90% of like white Christians Throughout yeah. all of church history, I mean, through all of American history, right? What you think of as the obvious interpretation was the, terp- the ter- interpretation of black Christians that ultimately won the day. Yeah. And they got to that interpretation. They saw the truth of the scriptures because of their location. And so our location can both, can both like help and hinder an interp- the biblical interpretation process, which is why I think in God's providence, we need each other to read the Bible pr- better right so i need ugandans nigerians african-americans white people italian all of this that that together we might discern the the mind of christ this isn't about eclipsing the bible as god's word to us for our good it is saying that like the bible that our experiences create motivated readers who bring certain questions to the text but what i want to say in reading while black is it's important to allow the bible as god's word to speak back to us Mm-hmm. There's a way of doing biblical interpretation where the Bible is just a place that receives all of our criticisms, right? Yeah. So black people have been mistreated by um, the church. And so the Bible has to receive all of that criticism. But what I wanted to say is that we have to allow the Bible to speak back to us. We can ask questions of the Bible, but the Bible allows us to answer that question back. And so when I talk about reading while black, I'm talking about the collective experiences of black people in America that create certain types of questions that we bring to the biblical text. And an example of that is once again, reading while black, right? I was able to say, I think that a lot of black people, because of their experiences in America, are going to care about the question of rage and policing. Yeah. And you see, right? Because just living as a black person in America, I can, I'm able to, from, this, from carrying this black skin around, to touch on a set of universal experiences. Yeah. Um, so that's what I think reading while black is attempting to do. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Um, I'm reading it now as a part of, of Esau's launch team and loving it. Um, and so we absolutely encourage you all to like get it. You can pre-order it now. It is technically out September the 1st. Um, I think there are a few, if you're in Phoenix, I know there's a few like reading groups forming um, 
to read the book. So reach out to myself or to Danae or somebody connected with Surge. If you're in another city, start a reading group, um, read through it. There's questions at the end of the book too that yes. people can use to kind of guide conversation. Um, and then, you know, read Esau in other places too. Like he mentioned, he's often in Christianity Today. You're like kind of month, you're pretty often in the New York Times now too, right? I have a monthly column. There's a column that comes out tomorrow. Sweet. So, hey, you guys, you, you listened to Esau today. Read that tomorrow. Yes. Um, anything so, else? You some, want- some Macaulay family news would be in the New York Times. It'd be really interesting. It's kind of a Oh, really? Okay. Talk about my wife. So it'll be really interesting. So it'll be a different kind of article. Any, what did you ask me? Um, anything else you want to say? Like anything that I should have said that I forgot in, in that closing? Um, if there are groups that um, want to read it, there. If, if you go to anglicanpastor.com yeah. or something like that, I can I think send it out. There's a link to people who want to, if they want to do bulk orders to kind of save some money. Cool. Um, so I'm always good about churches like saving money and yeah. it, it is designed for like the chapters kind of work independently of one another so it's a I designed it to be able to kind of be used in group settings and discussions at the end are open-ended kind of meant to be reflective so I wanted to write a book that was academically serious but also accessible to the church yeah. so I really really do hope that it benefits like the people like it's I am a pastor masquerading as an academic and so if it's useful to the church, then I feel like I've done my job. And thank you for taking so much time out of your afternoon to read it. Yeah. I mean, to listen to me. <laughs> thank you, guys. Um, never ended a webinar. Let's see if I can do it without messing everything up. But thank you, Esau. All right. Bye. Bye. To see if she's going to do it. Is she going to be able to do it? I think first I want to make sure I don't mess up the recording. (laughs) I don't know. Where's where's our guy? Can he I know um, I think here wait, I think I'm